don't talk too much. So talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening, and I'm Eric John. Um, Before we get into it, of course, I've got to tell you about Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club Soda has been making the best artisan soda in the entire world for over 100 years. You've got to go to YachtClubSoda.com and check it out. They've got amazing flavors like blue raspberry, cream, orange cream, lemon lime, root beer, uh, strawberry, pineapple, uh, grapefruit. They have a great uh, dry, pale ginger ale. Um, you will not be disappointed. Go to yachtclubsoda.com today and order some of the stuff for yourself. As long as you live in the United States of America, John Scambato will send some Yacht Club Soda your way. So go to yachtclubsoda.com today. Um, also, before we get into the show, of course, I want to tell you that I've got some new pizza art coming out really, really, really soon. Um, so make sure you go to at uh, Eric John Art on Twitter or at Eric John Pizza Art on Instagram uh, to check out all the new designs that will be coming out. And, of course, uh, some new NFTs coming in 2024 for those uh, collectors out there. Okay, on the show today, uh, an old friend of mine from uh, my high school days. I haven't talked to this guy in uh, quite a while, um, but he's turned into quite the journalist. Um, his name is Brent Lang, and uh, he is the executive editor of Variety Magazine. So I'm super psyched to talk to him uh, about the movie industry um, some of the big movies that have been coming out recently, uh, the future, the strike, COVID, all that sorts of good stuff. So without further ado, Brent, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so I want to start off with uh, a question I asked uh, Professor Jared Frederick, who is um, a, a film reviewer uh, and, and a historian, um, when I had him on the podcast, uh, which is, um, do you remember the first movie you ever saw in a movie theater? You know, I don't uh, remember the first movie I ever saw, but I, I mean, I remember a few like early ones. Like um, I remember seeing Back to the Future in a movie theater. And I remember seeing Harry and the Hendersons in the movie theater randomly. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I, and I think I saw a, um, like a revival of E.T. when I was pretty young. That's about it. You know, I, I I just one thing I remember about you, Brent, is that you've you've always loved uh, cinema and film, and you have a great appreciation for the the history of film. Um, did you did you always want to uh, work in the film industry or in something related to the film industry? Even you know when you back when you were in high school. I mean, I really liked uh, movies a lot. Um, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do when I was in high school. Um, I, I think I, for a while I thought I might want to be like an academic, um, but uh, that just ended up being too hard and I didn't really want success in that field to be, you know, maybe getting tenure at like West Virginia University. So I sort of decided to not do that. But I I've always liked movies a lot. When I was in high school, when we when we knew each other, I, I like worked at a video store and um, really loved that experience, just getting to see all these old movies and 
kind of cult movies and the video store I worked at had a lot of foreign films. And so that like just kind of was kind of an introduction to, oh, cinema beyond like big blockbuster cinema, which of course I enjoyed as well. But do you have uh, a I sort favorite, of fell into this. You kind of fell into it. Do you, yeah. um, do you have a favorite genre of film or, or even like a favorite um, uh, time period um, of, of films that you, that you really like more than any other? I mean, I, I don't know if I have a favorite um, genre. I, I really like film noir a lot. Um, I, I like kind of like um, mysteries and caper sort of movies. Um, I, my, my favorite time period would be this 1970s, uh, what was going on in the American film industry was so exciting. You know, you had um, like Scorsese and Coppola and all these great directors as kind of like an astonishing uh, flowering of talent. So I, I think that would be my favorite period. Not the most original answer, but. Uh, so, like. so I remember you went to, uh, you went to Brown uh, University. What, so what did your, where did your career take you after you graduated Brown? Did you go back to school uh, for graduate studies or did you jump right into the, the workforce? So I, um, I went, well, while I was at Brown, I interned at Forbes magazine um, in the summers, and that was actually a really great experience. Uh, Forbes was still is a is a great publication, but at the time it was like really doing pretty well. And I spent one summer on their website staff, one summer on their magazine staff, and one summer um, interning at a, a historical magazine they had called American Heritage. And then after college, I got a job as a researcher and fact checker at Forbes. And it was, it wasn't really, I wasn't, it wasn't a great experience in a way. It was just, I wasn't ready. I needed more training to kind of be a journalist at that level. Um, so after a couple of other little things, and uh, I, I almost went into a PhD program um, for history, but like right before I was gonna do it, I, I just realized like, this is not for me. Um, and then I went back to school for, um, I went back to graduate school. I went to um, Columbia for journalism. And while I was at Columbia, I worked um, part-time at cbsnews.com. And that was a really fantastic experience because it gave me a lot of grounding. I'd done some like freelance journalism and some other things, but I just didn't really feel like I knew, you know, it felt like a bit of a, of a hobby. And that sort of made me feel more like prepared to be a professional, um, that experience. Is, is being a journalist, like especially during that time when you first got those first jobs and had those first experiences is, is, that one, like the first time you really had a uh, a work experience where you really felt like you just you, like you enjoyed it. Like you mentioned it being sort of feeling like it was a hobby. I mean, I've had a, a similar experiences. Um, is is that the sort of feeling that sort of clicked with you that journalism is sort of the field that you wanted to go into? Yeah, I think I'm trying to actually. I, I mean, I I guess I sort of felt like I don't know what I want to do, and I'm you know, I wasn't like really good at this, at some marketable thing, you know, like um, computers or, or engineering or something like that. But I did always enjoy writing and learning about things. And 
so that journalism just became, and I, and I worked on the school paper at, in college, so it wasn't like I did nothing in the field, but I didn't really know. I, I guess I, I always sort of felt like an imposter before I, I kind of went back to school and really focused on it. Um, and I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like kind of a thing. Um, it's a kind of a weird career. Like I, I sort of feel like I um, am like a, like a fake adult or something because it's such a strange, <laughs> like I, I really like it. I mean, it's been wonderful. I've had great experiences, but um, it's, you know, like my life is kind of strange. I like, you know, I call people up and bother them and ask them about their, their lives and ask some like sort of invasive questions and like, they're fine with it because I'm a journalist and then I like, I don't know. It's just, it's like a kind of a weird career. And I mean, it's kind of, it's wonderful. And the sense that like no day is the same and you just have this excuse to learn about, different people and um but it sort of surprises me that um that like i get paid to do this you know right um, yeah so. is are there any uh, actors um or directors or producers or anybody in particular who you've interviewed for articles um that you were particularly excited to talk to, like the, you know, someone that who you've personally were a fan of, or or even just someone you were really interested to sort of get to know more. Or you you, know, you had just naturally had a lot of questions for, um, you know, do, are there any interviews that come to mind that are sort of really your favorites that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had some that I really enjoyed. Um, I mean, for the most part, uh, for like my larger stories where I like really profile somebody or like spend a lot of time with them, it's it's been very rare that I haven't liked a person I've profiled um, just because you kind of get to see them and you get to learn more about them and get to understand kind of like what makes them tick. I mean, there've been a few examples of people I didn't particularly enjoy, but most of them have been interesting. Um, but I think I was... I was really excited to interview Michael J. Fox because he'd been a big movie star when I was a kid and I really admired what he did with his life. And he was just such a, a lovely um, cover subject and um, he was so open and kind. Um, talking to Viola Davis too, um, I had this strange personal connection where when I was a little kid, I was at Trinity Rep and A Christmas Carol and um, she was in the cast and I was like a spirit and I came out from under her. She had this long skirt. And I came out from under that. So it was sort of interesting to <laughs> remind her of that. Um, I bet. And we ended up having just a very nice conversation about like Rhode Island and, and that kind of strange connection. Um, and then I, it wasn't even a, for a very big piece, but I interviewed um, Christopher Plummer um, and, it, and it was supposed to be like 20 minutes and it ended up being like two hours. And he just sort of um, told me like all these stories about different people he'd worked with, like uh, John Houston and Sean Connery and like people that I really <clears throat> had grown up liking their work a lot. Um, so that was kind of a cool one. 
I mean, I don't know. There's, they're always, they're, it's always interesting. And then there are people who like, I actually don't, like, I'm not like a huge, I wouldn't say I'm not like a fan of their work, but I, you know, they're not like my idols, but I interviewed um, Sam Worthington from Avatar um, last year. And he was just, it was a very interesting interview where he talked to me a lot about kind of his struggles with addiction and alcohol. And I just found it to be him to be such an open person. So I think any, any interview where like that, somebody just kind of comes to have a very like candid and honest conversation, you know, I really think back very fondly on. Do you, do you think that, you know, one of the, one of the things that occurs to me, um, and, and being a huge fan of cinema myself, my entire life, um, it does feel like now more than ever, there's a, there's a, a, a big disconnect between sort of the average moviegoer and, you know, the, the average American citizen, consumer, whatever, and the movie industry, um, and the kind of content that's, that's being put out. Um, although, it, you know, it, it's, been great to see the success of movies like Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, do you, do you think that, you know, I, I wonder if, um, interviews like the ones you do where, you know, especially people like a Michael J Fox who, who, you know, his story transcends his work. Right. Um, do you think that, you know, to what extent do you think those kinds of interviews and those kinds of stories and and actors telling their 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 sort of real life story and letting people in um, helps the the general public sort of identify with them more or or you know makes them more likely perhaps to uh, to go see their movies because um, it does seem like um, you know movie going is not necessarily at its peak right now. Well, I mean, I definitely, I th- I think there are, you know, a couple of really good points that you made there. I mean, definitely one thing is that movie going is, is not what it was, you know, in terms of the, the culture, like, like it was when we were in high school, you know, I mean, I just don't think younger people go as much video games are much more important. Uh, Many, many, many more people watch stuff on YouTube than, you know, in a cinema. Um, So I think that's absolutely true. I, I mean, I do think there's, there's still a fairly large audience for movies, and I think um, I'm not sure how much like doing an interview does in terms of selling tickets. I think it, it obviously it helps. It raises awareness for a film. It's probably more more important for like a smaller film, an independent film, or like an Oscar film to kind of get people talking about it and thinking about it because those movies have such small marketing budgets that they can't just kind of, you know, flood the zone in outdoor advertising or, or TV commercials. Um, I think some of it is also, you know, obviously these people do this to promote their work, but in a way, I think they also want to talk about their work and they are proud of their work and they want to talk about, um, you know, their art. Um, so I think it's, you know, I, th- I think in a strange way, it's, it's a bit of ego as well, uh, not just kind of commerce. It's really interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned video games and I think that's something that's, uh, it's not often talked about 
um, just how huge video games have become. I'm not a gamer. I'm not a, you know, I, <laughs> I still have an old NES that like is missing chords that like, I'd love to set up for my <laughs> kids to be able to play. But like, I know nothing about what's going on with video games today, other than the fact that they're incredibly popular, um, especially with platforms such as Twitch. Um, and of course, like the, the biggest film of the year so far is, uh, you know, is, is the Mario Brothers movie. Um, I had a, uh, a box office uh, analyzer on, on the show um, a few weeks back. Uh, his name's Odin. Uh, and, and he's from a, uh, it's a channel called OMB Reviews. And we talked a lot about the Super Mario movie and just, you know, why was it, why did it do so well? Because it, it did, it did incredibly well. Why do you think that movie in particular, like, did so well? Was it sort of like a perfect storm of just the right place at the right time? Or is it the subject matter? Um, I'm, I'm really curious to, to ask you why you think that movie did so well. I mean, I think there were a few reasons. I mean, I think that one reason it did very well is that they were very smart in partnering with Nintendo and making sure that the movie, you know, was uh, identifiably Mario related and had all these Easter eggs and nods to that game. And, you know, they had um, uh, Miyamoto, uh, the creator of Mario, produced that film and was very involved in it creatively. So I think that gave fans of the game um, a feeling of security that they were in good hands. And then I think that they benefited from... um, a couple of things. Uh, they had a very good release date in April or late March. There wasn't a lot of other big movies out there. Um, it had been a long time since there'd been a family film. Um, and people do still really like to, to take kids to, uh, to films. It's like a good, fairly cost efficient um, family activity. And it was a movie that parents wanted to see too. So it had like a multi-generational appeal because a lot of people who grew up playing Mario, you know, now they have kids. Um, so I think that helped as well. And it, the kind of animated movies that seem to be doing well right at the moment have like a little bit of a comedic um, sensibility um, and like don't really take themselves terribly seriously. And that's one thing that Illumination, the company, behind uh, Mario and Despicable Me has been really good at doing is like kind of finding these like kind of offbeat, slightly irreverent um, types of films um, to make. So I think that, that it, I mean, I guess you said perfect storm. It was kind of a perfect storm of all these things coming together. Do you, do you, do you think the popularity of video games um, today also had an effect? And, and the reason I asked that is just because um, historically, video game themed movies haven't done um, very well at the box office, and this is sort of like a, a new thing. Um, and now, of course, people are you know people are talking about them making all sorts of movies about all sorts of different video games now. Um, do you think that that's part of it too, or um, you know, is it really just it comes down to this is a good family movie that people can take their kids to that you said has cross generational appeal and, and all of those things. So it's, you're definitely right that historically video game adaptations haven't done as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I think some of that is 
is they had a lot of difficulty figuring out how to take the elements of a game that make them compelling, that kind of like experiential um, aspect of a game and translating that into a narrative. They've, they've done a much better job recently. And I think you've seen some more success in this realm, like Sonic the Hedgehog has done fairly well. Those movies did well. And um, uh, The Last of Us on HBO has done well. I think as like the one thing that Hollywood always needs is new types of intellectual property and, and kind of like pre-branded content. So I think in light of that, you're going to see a lot more video games being adapted. And it just took them a little while to figure out how to do it. And the same was true for comic book movies. I mean, you had Superman in the 80s and then Batman, and then they, they didn't, couldn't really figure out how to how to do it them that well. They had things like um, Rocketeer and The Shadow. And so it, it sort of, it, it can take, it can take entertainment companies a little while to kind of figure out the right DNA um, to sort of adapt popular uh, forms of entertainment um, for, for the screen. I think, I think you're going to see a lot more uh, video games uh, made into movies. <laughs> right. Well, um, you know, I, I hope they do. I hope they make a Zelda movie because obviously I'm, you know, I, I like those classic games. And I, I think that would actually I think make they a really are cool movie. Going to, uh, definitely. The rights are. Oh, really? That's wow. Yeah. That's great. Um, you know, I think that I always, I always thought that game lent itself, uh, lent itself very well to the idea of having a, a movie series or, you know, it's a whole world and everything. So that would be cool. Um, the other thing you mentioned, uh, Brent was YouTube. Um, and that most young people especially, um, are spending most of their time watching YouTube videos. Um, not, you know, not, not even necessarily, uh, television content that's, you know, on streaming services and things like that. Um, there's been a real rise of YouTubers, um, especially ones that uh, have channels specifically dedicated to the entertainment industry. Um, you know, whether that's a, a channel like Star Wars Theory, which, um, you know, has, has become so popular that he's got almost as many subscribers on YouTube as the Star Wars YouTube channel itself. Um, but, you know, also um, other ones like The Critical Drinker or Nerdrotic or, you know, these channels that are, um, they're sort of like, to me, they're sort of like a modern day Cisco and Ebert. You know, they, they're always re reviewing movies and things. To, to what extent is Hollywood um, aware of this rise in YouTube channels, uh, especially ones that are reviewing its content uh, on a daily basis. Um, you know, are they aware of this um, phenomenon and uh, what's, how do they generally feel about it? How do the studios feel about this new, this new, um, uh, this, this new culture? You know, I don't, I don't know it that well. I mean, I know they're, they're definitely aware of it and they're aware of, um, of the importance of having like influencers. If you go to a premiere now, a ton of the people um, who are there are influencers, social media influencers who they, they specifically like line up to kind of, I don't know, live stream things, do, do, do whatever they, they do. Um, and, and there's, there's kind of like two approaches um, to selling a movie. Um, you know, you have to go through kind of traditional 
established uh, media, uh, which, you know, Variety, where I work, is definitely one of those types of outlets, the, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Hollywood Reporter, a whole bunch of places. And then there's also a, like, a more fan type of approach where you really, like, lean into that type of content. So I would imagine um, that some of the types of reviewers that you talked about would be seen more in that um, bucket. Um, but obviously they have an enormous platform. So um, the studios are paying attention to them. I want to ask you about uh, the strike. Um, so for those people listening who might not be aware, um, the the Actors Guild and the Writers Guild, I believe those are the two, um, have been on strike for a little while now, um, you know, which means that these big studios can't make new content, basically. Um, is there, you know, and this is not something new either. These strikes have happened, of course, in the past. But I was wondering if there's anything about this strike in particular that is different um, than past strikes that maybe that makes it stand out. Cause it does to me just as a fan and as a viewer and a, you know, and a consumer of content and entertainment, it does feel a little different to me. Um, so I'm wondering what you think. You're absolutely right that there have been strikes in the past, but, um, it's very rare for the actors and writers to be on strike at the same time. And I think the last time that happened was in the early sixties, like 1960, in fact, Ronald Reagan was head of the Screen Actors Guild. Um, and at that time, the issue was about um, how people would be compensated for um, TV. A lot of it had to do with like the emergence of television. And, and in this, at this period, it's more about streaming and, and how much that has upended um, business models. So I think what is happening is um, there's a lot of economic insecurity in the industry because uh, as streaming has um, you know become the dominant form of of entertainment, um, it's m kind of messed up the way that people used to make money. Um, the theatrical box office isn't as as large a part of the overall pie as it was, and then there were a lot of like ancillary revenues. This is more uh, more applicable to television than film for the most part. But um, so, for example, syndication, um, when your show went into syndication, you would have a big windfall. Um, the residuals you got when, uh, when it appeared on different platforms were much higher. Um, residuals are you know, basically royalties uh, than they are when your show or movie appears on Netflix or Apple, um, and you're totally right too about the length of the strike. This is going to be the longest writer's strike in history, I believe, pretty soon. Um, they've been on strike since May, and the actors have been on strike since July, and the sides seem to be still fairly far apart. So you're looking at, um, it's a bigger deal uh, in you know, kind of the immediate term to have the actors on strike because that means that you can't film anything. Um, the it, It's a problem to have the writers on strike because you can't have um, any, like, punching up of dialogue. You can't be developing new films or new sequels or things like that, new television shows. 
Um, but there's basically been a work stoppage um, for all intents and purposes um, among the major Hollywood studios. So it's a big issue. And I think if you also like look kind of nationwide, um, it's a time of a lot of labor unrest um, coming out of the pandemic. So you've had a lot of strikes in other industries. Um, and I, I think we're just at a kind of moment where people are demanding more from their workplaces. And, and this is kind of part of that too. I, you know, I want to ask you about the pandemic, but before I do, I, I do have one more question about the strike. And, and, you know, it, it occurs to me that, you know, certain, certain industries, certain parts of life, things like uh, education or um, other public services like police and fire, when there's a strike, um, it's actually like, it's illegal to fire the, the people who are striking. It's actually, it's not like illegal. You can't just get rid of those people and hire non-union workers. I'm not sure um, that that's, necessarily the case with the entertainment industry and so uh, if it is you can let me know but if not i'm wondering you know what would be stopping the studios for from just you know hiring a bunch of hungry non-union writers and actors who i'm sure would love to be in you know big budget productions well i think the problem is that most of the people they would want are in these unions and it could kind of poison the well going forward. Um, so I think, I think it would just be kind of too difficult. Now, one thing that could happen and, and may happen, and it's, if it does happen, it, it would be probably advantageous for the writers and the actors unions is that, um, the major studios and streamers are all part of a, um, group called the Alliance for Motion Picture and television producers, the AMPTP. And that's who is negotiating with the different unions. Um, so they're all kind of in it together. But if those studios and streamers started to break away and forge their own agreements with the unions, I mean, that that is a possibility where you would have like Netflix comes to its own deal and right, Disney right. comes to its own deal. And I mean, that's possible that that might be what happens at a certain point. You know, that would be a really interesting uh, development. And I almost wonder um, if if an outcome like that would actually, in a way, create more competition amongst these different studios. Um, you know, I, I that's something I didn't actually realize that that all these studios sort of also sort of collectively negotiate. Um, yeah, because uh, I mean, it's in, in their regard. interest to collectively negotiate or, you know, tradition, right. historically, it has been in their interest uh, to collectively negotiate. Uh, right, right. Oh, that's interesting. OK, well, we'll certainly be looking out for that. Um, that's, that's an outcome I but hadn't it, really it, considered. And it's interesting. I mean, and there are some reasons why they, you know, they're historically, their business model has been the same, basically. Right. You you made a movie, you released it in a movie theater you sold the rights to cable and then you tried to get people to buy your DVDs or VHS tapes or whatever. But now, you know, you have some people who are really interested in the theatrical business. And then you have people like Netflix who don't really care at all. And then you have very different size audiences for these streaming services. So Netflix doesn't seem to care as much if its viewership information is out there because it has a very wide audience. But if you're Peacock, you might not want to share that data. Um, so it's their, their needs aren't um, 
as closely aligned as they have been historically. Do you think that also the fans themselves, um, and I'm speaking somewhat anecdotally for myself here, um, are less hungry for new content, you know, almost primarily because there's so many streaming services that have like the entire, for instance, like the entire Disney catalog sitting on it. Um, you know, like it's, to me, it's like there's there's no shortage of of stuff that I can choose from to watch that's already been made and is and is you know, I think that's sitting up there that you're hitting on something in a in a way because yeah I mean if you look on Netflix and go through their top ten I mean often it's it's kind of surprising it's like Sin of a Woman is four or something and <laughs> you know that is surprising or. Um, what was that? What's that show with Meghan Markle? Suits was like the most Suits. watched show for a while, you know, and that's been off the air for a while. So I think you're right. Um, I do think there's still like people still want new in some ways. They want to be part of a big cultural thing. And, you know, when movies work, they are pretty good at that. Um, like Oppenheimer or Barbie or Super Mario yeah, or Avatar. Um, so I think like p- people will feel that lack at, at some point, but, um, right. It's, it's easier. You're right. Like there's more available to you now. Yeah. Barbie, I, I just, you know, just from a, a appreciation standpoint as someone who's you know interested in marketing, just, I mean, just a, the, the brilliant job that they did marketing that movie and making it this sort of cultural moment that everyone felt like they had to be a part of. And everyone kind of wanted to go see with their, you know, especially, you know, young women uh, and older women going with their friends, big, you know, going in big groups of friends uh, to go see it. Um, I haven't seen a movie uh, really do that in a while. Like I remember as a kid in the, you know, in the mid nineties, like when someone mentions the summer of 96 or whatever, I just think independence day, like it just, it just immediately, like it just, it's synonymous with my experience as a, as a kid and you know, the summer of that year, um, and I do feel like Barbie is probably going to be one of those types of movies that people just people just remember will identify it with this year. Um, yeah, the I way think that- you're, you're totally right. I mean, I think that the kind of the there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic about the movie business, but the one thing that's kind of great recently is you've seen a lot of like original in quotes because they're not entirely original, but. Um, movies like Mario or Barbie or Oppenheimer do really well. And you've seen a lot of like sixth or seventh installments of films underperform like um, whatever fast and furious movie we're on. And some of the Marvel movies, yeah, mission impossible. Like people are, you know, they, they seem to want something new and different and fresh. And, you know, as somebody who likes movies, um, and gets a little tired of all the sequels like that's that's a that's a good sign i think um yeah no i agree with you with that it makes sense and i think yeah you could probably put the live action disney remakes probably in that category as well that yeah people do seem to be kind of getting tired of them um so i want to talk about covid just a little bit um because it obviously had a huge impact on the movie industry. Um, but, you know, we are, you know, two or three years removed from it now. Um, and I do, you know, the movie studios do tend to still use COVID uh, as an excuse for low numbers and things like that. 
Um, but maybe, maybe just explain to people listening, because I've had people on um, talk about their experiences running a business through COVID and stuff. And, you know, I'm sure it was tough for people in the film industry as well. Maybe not the studios themselves. They've got, they got tons of money from the government and things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of people that work in the film industry that are grips and technicians and makeup artists and things like that. Um, can you just maybe give a little color to that experience and talk about um, the impact that the COVID lockdowns had on sort of your just run of the mill, um, you know, film industry employee worker on a film set? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. Um, you know, the business is is employs a lot of different people and a lot of different types of professions and they were impacted in different ways. So movie theaters were closed for, um, you know, over a year in a lot of cases or, or were operating at a lot less than capacity and they didn't have a lot of movies to show because studios delayed them. So that sector was really badly hurt, um, by COVID and they haven't, totally come back the domestic box office is a lot stronger than it um than it has been you know it it seems to be getting a lot better um and then but then um and there's some reasons why the box office is down that aren't just um covid related Uh, there's some like geopolitical things that are really hurting the financial picture for theatrical releases Uh, russia was actually a fairly major film market and obviously with the war in ukraine um movies aren't getting released there or not many uh, are and china is um you know in a bit of a standoff with the united states and that's really hurt uh movies that are getting released um in that country um so that's been you know collectively it could mean a loss of over 100 million dollars on a major film about 100 million dollars you wouldn't be getting now but then a lot of people in the industry actually ended up going back to work um physically uh, before other sectors because um, production was shut down during COVID, but it started back up fairly quickly. Um, The problem was that in order to start it back up, you had to do all these things to keep people COVID free. So you had to put on these COVID precautions and have all this testing. And that cost a lot of money. Um, And often, even when you were back in production, you were getting shut down periodically, which kept costing money as well because your lead got sick or something like that, or the director got sick. And so a lot of the big movies that have been coming out recently, you know, added tens of millions of dollars to their budget because of these like COVID shutdowns and um, other precautions that they had to put in. So that's put a lot of strain on the movie business. Um, and I think it was just like also just a very difficult experience to make a movie that way where, uh, you know, an artistic enterprise like that, you you want to feel really collaborative and connected to people. And if you can't, if it was very difficult for you to be physically in the, like someone's in close proximity, I think I just think it was kind of a scary experience. I don't think people I think it was hard. So I think there was like a psychological cost as well as a uh, financial one. Do do you think the fact that um, the movie industry was allowed to sort of uh, gear back up and go back to work much sooner than a lot of others 
um, places. I talked to a woman named uh, Melissa Wagner who had a salon uh, in San Francisco and um, basically ultimately had to shut it down and move because uh, she couldn't survive. Do you think that um, that decision to allow the movie industry to sort of get back to work sooner than a lot of other sectors, did, did it create a certain level of animosity amongst different segments of the population to where maybe that affected the bottom line in terms of movie going. And a lot of people started feeling, you know, this sort of, almost sort of the same type of resentment that people had um, against the big banks in 2008 when, you know, they were bailed out and helped out and, and, and given preferential treatment. Do you think that that played into it at all? I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I'm not sure that COVID did that. I do think that um, as the country has become more kind of politically divided, Hollywood has always been a liberal um, industry um, with a lot of very liberal stars. I do think you've seen, um, there's been a lot more politicization around um, content. And I'm thinking of like Ron DeSantis's um, standoff with Disney uh, in Florida, uh, where, you know, he really sort of used that company as the epitome of, you know, quote unquote, woke, woke culture. Um, I think that's probably going to become a, a bigger issue. You know, I, I could see people not going to see things because of kind of their political beliefs. But um, I don't know, I, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify. Do you think that it's sort of just one of those things where the movie industry, just like everything else, has been so infected with politics, um, you know, of all kinds, um, that it's it's really kind of just poisoned it to a certain extent where some people just don't even they don't, it doesn't even matter what the politics are necessarily. They're just kind of exhausted by it and are just kind of tuning it out. I mean, I think maybe, you know, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, in, in some ways, I think that that, in fact, a lot of the major studios don't make particularly political movies. Um, you know, I, I don't see a lot of messaging that's political. But I think that we've become so much of like our political debate has become kind of a cultural one that right. Just even the act of of centering a movie on a, um, you know, a, a, a black uh, superhero or um, a female superhero or a member of the LGBTQ plus community or something like that uh, becomes sort of more politically charged for people. I mean, I happen to think that's a good thing. I, I'm glad that Hollywood does that. But, um, you know, I... I don't know. I, 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 in a way, it's kind of more of a sad comment on just how sort of divided the country is. Um, yeah. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, is it, is it, you know, and, and, you know, I think we're all sort of susceptible, especially nowadays, um, just with technology and everything and the, the way th social media works and everything of, of kind of getting into our own echo chamber. So I really try hard to, to just pull back a little bit and kind of look at everything, um, with a big a lens as possible. Um, and so I wonder, you know, is it the kind of thing where art is imitating life or is it more where life is imitating art? And I think sometimes it can be hard to tell 
which is which and where one begins and the other one ends. Um, you know, do you, and is part of this also maybe just cyclical? Like sometimes the movie industry goes through these times where it's, it's up and sometimes it's down and sometimes, um, there's more controversy associated with it and other times there aren't, um, you know, do you see maybe looking forward into the future just with, you know, through your experience, um, maybe us as a culture, but also the movie industry as well. And the moviegoers kind of putting a lot of this stuff aside and um, just kind of getting back to just wanting to be entertained and being entertained. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it just sort of depends on the filmmakers. Um, And I mean, I, I also like, I think, you know, obviously movies are mostly, uh, created to entertain people but i think there's there's something good and and provoking and inspiring people too and i and i do hope actually that movies don't lose that because i think um they can really change people's minds a little bit you know i mean are just popular culture in, in general so it's um yeah i don't know i mean i i i, I I wouldn't say that a lot of the like major movies that that Hollywood releases are, um, uh, you know, um, even very thoughtful <laughs> for the most part. I mean, they're pretty, pretty, uh, pretty popcorny. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a specific question for you about the Academy Awards, um, and it's something that I used to watch routinely every year um and for a long long time and haven't for you know the the past several um but i'm wondering if um you know one of the complaints about the academy awards among among many things is that oftentimes the films that uh win a lot of the awards um or that are nominated are, are films that most people haven't seen or even heard of um do you think in part, especially with the best picture category, that going back to having 10 nominees um, might be playing into that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because they originally did it because the dark Knight didn't get nominated in uh, 2008. Oh, is that really the Um, reason? Yeah. Oh, that's the, um, that's the major reason. Um, so uh, they were trying to actually get more commercial stuff into the category. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but uh, it didn't quite work that way. I mean, it, and it hasn't, it hasn't. You know, usually you have a couple of blockbusters that are among the Best Picture nominees. The thing is, the difference is kind of, you know, having just a nominee that a lot of people have seen doesn't necessarily seem to, change the ratings that much i mean they kind of have to be like a viable contender you know right uh like titanic when it swept that was sort of the high watermark for ratings um i also just think like people just aren't watching tv as much anymore either and um so there's a bit of a decline and you're absolutely right that the films that tend to be getting nominated are um often um, uh, kind of like art house movies, which have a lot of great parts to them too. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, that, that that's been a big problem for the Oscars is that a lot of, a lot of the movies that have done the best of the Oscars haven't done that well commercially. Yeah. Cause it occurred to me that, you know, with, with 10 nominees, it's a lot easier for a, a film to get, you know, uh, 20% of the, of the vote and, and win the award as opposed to when there was five, you know, it would, it would, you know, there would have to be a lot. Yeah. More. And it's also a, like a ranked choice, um, system too. So, Oh, is it really? Okay. Often, I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird thing where you put, you put an order on your ballot. So uh, frequently the film that wins is like the one that got the most third choices, you know, or something like that. Oh, I mean, I'm not so a mathematician. Weird, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got the most third choices. <laughs> we, we yeah. It's sort of, it's a kind of a strange thing or, or there, there's a, mo- there'll be a movie that like it has a really, really passionate defenders, but then people really hate it too. So it doesn't have a chance. Right. What, what was the um, general mood in in Hollywood surrounding the whole Will Smith, Chris Rock incident? Because, you know, watching it, um, you know, after the fact, just, you know, obviously seeing the, the videos that were going everywhere, um, it did kind of seem like in the room that it, that it didn't, it, it wasn't a huge, it didn't seem like a big deal to a lot of people. Um, but of course that could, that could be a misconception on my, on my part. Um, what was, I mean, what, I think people what, were so confused in the moment. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I thought it was a gag or whatever. I thought it was a gag at first. And then it was, it was kind of a, it, it sort of took them a minute to figure out what to do and how to handle it. And they didn't, you know, eject him. And then he's getting this, winning an award a few minutes later, basically, or um, it was more than a few minutes, but um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't well handled. Uh, that's certainly uh, an understatement. Um, and it's, I think it's hurt him, his career quite a bit um, because it went against what the public thought of him, you know? Right. And I think um, he's, so likable on screen he's so charismatic and this seems so in such an act of entitlement um i think people really uh it really hurt him um and then the fact that he went out partying later you know, right that too I think yeah. that really hurt him too yeah do you think that generally there is um there is a problem with uh celebrities um you know, especially the, the at the level of which that they're you know being nominated for Academy Awards, um, you know where where that that's there is that sort of sense of entitlement that just that just kind of turns a lot of the, the average person off. Um, you know, and, and I think it's an, I think it's interesting because um, you know it's not that long ago where people used to watch to because of the glamour of it all, um, and so I don't know if it's necessarily the fact that these are just very wealthy people, but, um, you know, is there an an element of, you know, them just not getting what is going through the mind of the average person? One one of the things I think of is the, is the, the Ricky Gervais, uh, performance at the golden globes the last time he did it. Um, you know, in kind of encouraging people to just be gracious. Of course he did it in a, 
he said that not in the way that I just said it, but <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but this was a little less gracious. But you know but. that 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 does matter. Um, things like Tom Cruise including a thank you message um, to moviegoers going to see Top Gun, things like that. Does do, do the movie stars and the celebrities and the, and the movie studios need to do a better job of of kind of ingratiating themselves to the the public in that in that way specifically? Uh, you know, I don't know. I I mean, I think. I don't particularly, I don't actually think people necessarily like movie stars to be too relatable. Like, I think they're supposed to be kind of up there in the heavens, you know. Like Jack Nicholson, sort of mysterious. Exactly. But I think, I think that, that some of it is, um, you know, we just see movie stars so much more because of social media and that's taken a little bit of the shine away from them. And it used to be like right. outside of seeing a movie star in a movie, you know, the, the Oscars were like kind of it, like you didn't really see them out in the, out in the wild. Yeah, that's true. Right. So, you know, I think that there, that that's kind of been taken away a bit. Yeah. Well, Brent, this has been such an interesting conversation. Um, I, I love talking movies and to be able to do it with someone like you who knows so much about it and has been in the industry and around the industry. Um, for for a while now is really just a treat for me um and uh so i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me uh can you just let people listening know um just about variety magazine where they can find it um where they might even be able to follow you on social media um, anything like that you want to you want to share with the audience oh sure yeah i mean it's always fun to talk to you too eric and it's nice to talk to a fellow rhode islander of course Um, yes but Variety, um, I mean, you can subscribe to it, but we also have a website, variety.com, that has a lot of up-to-the-minute uh, news on it. And I'm on Twitter at Brent A. Lang. Um, and, yeah, I, and I'd say I'm on Instagram, but I'm all I do is post photos of my dog. So uh, <laughs> people should follow that, probably. <laughs> well, everyone likes a good pet picture, a good dog picture. That's, that's never a bad thing. It always cheers me up. Um, Brent, thanks again. Um, and, uh, you know, congratulations on all your success and, and it's, it, I love seeing it and it's been great to talk to you and I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. This is the just listening podcast. I gotta go. Go away. We just got I got that thing. I gotta go with pizza artist, Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together. Okay. This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like share and subscribe.